Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 22nd, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, which is used each Friday and features commentary from practitioners, jurists, and academics regarding appellate issues of salience. We've got two terrific guests this week. The first we'll visit to talk about the uniquely grueling challenges of long-shot post-conviction criminal appeals. Our guest, Justin Brown of Brown and Yeto, is an attorney who spent the better part of the past decade working on a post-conviction appeal, the latest twists of which have captivated much of the country. Mr. Brown is the appellate counsel to Adnan Syed, subject of the wildly popular podcast Serial. Since 2008, Mr. Brown has represented Syed, who, as many listeners surely know, received a life sentence from a Maryland court after being convicted of murdering his high school girlfriend in 1999. This conviction came after a trial in which a strong alibi witness was not so much as contacted by Syed's trial counsel, Brown was not representing Mr. Syed at the time, and in which some of the strongest inculpatory evidence included cell phone tower data that the affiliated cell phone company then had disclaimed as not forensically reliable. After nearly a decade of work pushing a post-conviction appeal on both of the above points, Mr. Brown won a new trial for Syed at the end of June, based on the shaky cell data. He'll speak about the unrelenting gauntlet of statistically improbable appeals like Syed's, and also what it's like being an attorney in a case that rivets such national attention. Our second guest is Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group in San Francisco. Ben will kick off our summer series previewing the United States Supreme Court's 2016 October term. On Tuesday, on today's docket is Samsung versus Apple, a massive patent case that will settle an important question relating to patent design damages, namely, whether an infringer must disgorge all profits derived from sales of a product when that product included infringing parts, even if those parts constituted a relatively small portion of the overall product. At issue here were certain patents relating to the iPhone, such as rounded edges and a 4x4 app grid. Samsung's Galaxy phones, a, a lower court found, infringed on those patents and as a result, a jury found, Apple was entitled to all the profits Samsung netted from that infringing line of phones, nearly half a billion dollars. Though, of course, there was much more to the Galaxy phones than simply their curved corners and app icons. Mr. Ford discusses whether this seemingly punitive approach to design patent damages will sustain once the country's high court weighs in. But first, and as always, I'd like to remind you that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this show. It's very simple. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Complete that, and an hour of CLE credit is yours. Now with that, let's hear from Justin Brown, counsel to Adnan Syed. Tremendously honored now to welcome to the show Mr. Justin Brown, an attorney with Brown & Nieto, firm in Baltimore. Mr. Brown represents Adnan Syed, who became a household name in late 2014 as the subject of the wildly popular serial podcast. Mr. Syed was convicted in 2000 of murdering his girlfriend, his high school girlfriend, based quite significantly on evidence of cell phone tower data, which would place Adnan at certain pertinent places at, at pertinent times that pertain to the crime. And now just a couple of weeks ago, a Maryland state court granted Mr. Sayed a, a new trial based on the potential unreliability of some of that cell phone tower data. So Mr. Brown, first, thanks for being on the show and congratulations. It's, it's my pleasure to be on the show and thank you for inviting me on. 
America became tremendously familiar with Anand Sayed in 2014 during the first season of Serial. I think it was downloaded something like 100 million times. But you, of course, have known Anand for much longer than that. I think you've been a part of this case for several years before the airing of Serial. How and when did you first become involved in Adnan's appeal for a new trial? I was first approached by Adnan's family, and in particular, a friend of the family named Rabia Chaudhry in... Um, it was in late 2008, and I had just left. I'd been working um, at a firm, and I had just gone out onto my own when uh, they approached me. And, and I, obviously, at, at that time, he had been convicted, and there had been a direct appeal, which had been denied. So I was approached about being his post-conviction lawyer, and... Um, under the Maryland law, you have 10 years to file a post-conviction petition. So I think at that time, there was probably about a year remaining to work on the the petition and get it ready to file. So, um, you know, I, 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 I met the family. Um, I, I spoke to, to Adnan, and um, I learned about his case. And, um, you know, I, 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 was, I was pretty moved by it. And it was it was a case that, that seemed interesting to me. You know, here here we were 10 years out, and um, he did maintain his innocence, which, um, which you know, you, you don't see that all that often. Um, you know, sometimes people are coming to you where it's, it's clear that they're guilty and you're just hoping to shorten their sentence. But this was an innocence case, and um, I found it to be pretty compelling from the very beginning. Yeah, at that time, obviously, we're, we're before serial. So Adnan, you know, as a, a convicted man in prison, as you say, insisting on his innocence, certainly not, not the only such person. What to you made his story stand out? Was it that he was um, so insistent that he had not done these crimes? That, that, was, that was one thing. And I also felt that there, there was some proof that he had not committed the crime because um, almost as soon as the, as the case came in, um, I learned that uh, there was an alibi witness who could put him um, in the in the school library, you know, in and she would say that she was um, hanging out with him and having a conversation with him at precisely the time when the state theorized that the murder took place. And yet um, it it was it could be proven that his defense attorney had never, reached out and even picked up the phone and spoken to this alibi witness. So, you know, right, right away, um, you look at that and, and you're like, wow, that's, that's a good issue. And um, that goes directly to his innocence. So I found that to be, to be very compelling. The witness you're describing, obviously, um, for listeners of the serial podcast, Asia McLean, who you say was potential alibi not contacted during the original trial. As it turns out, I believe the order that came down at the end of June granted a new trial, but not on that basis, on, on another claim that you brought up in the post-conviction appeal relating to the cell phone tower data. Is that right? Th- that's correct. Um, and, and, you know, it, it was sort of... Um, to some extent, it was surprising. Um, you know, we we still we still um, think that that's a, a great issue. And you know, in the event that the state seeks to appeal on the cell tower issue, um, you know, I don't think I'm revealing any top secret strategy by saying it's it's likely that we would 
um, we would cross appeal on the alibi issue because, you know, we, we, we still think it's a great issue. And uh, at the end of the day, it, it helps us tremendously. Maybe could you tell me a bit more about the meat of this order? So at the original trial, there was a cell phone expert that testified about data retrieved from towers, potentially placing Adnan in certain places, but he hadn't been shown some disclaimers about the reliability of, of that data by the prosecution. Is that is that right? The, the the big thing was that we um, we learned that the the phone records. So you know most people are probably familiar with how um, law enforcement will use phone calls to determine which cell tower a call pinged off of. Um, well, in in AT and T records at that time, there was essentially a disclaimer or I guess you could also just call it some instructions of how to read the phone data. And in those instructions, it said that the data was only reliable for outgoing calls and that it was, it should not be considered reliable for incoming calls. Mm -hmm. So during the trial, the state relied heavily on two incoming calls, which they argued and, and they made this argument over and over again. In in some ways, it was the the meat of their case. Um, they argued that two incoming phone calls put Syed at the site where the victim was buried, um, and that that was corroborated by a cooperating co-conspirator's um, testimony. So, you know, there, there was other cell phone evidence that came into trial, but the strongest and and you know, by the state's own admission, their their best fact was that they could supposedly use these incoming calls to put him at the burial site. Well, you know, now um, this AT&T cover sheet comes up and um, we sort of figure it out and it says those calls were not reliable. So, you know, I think as all practitioners know, when, when the phone company itself is saying this is not reliable, um, if if an attorney figures that out and gets a hold of that and presents that argument to the judge, almost all trial judges are not going to let that evidence in. Um, It's not going to pass Daubert. And in Maryland, we have a slightly different threshold test, uh, the case called Fry. But um, nonetheless, the the post-conviction court found that it was ineffective assistance of counsel for the trial counsel not to raise this issue at trial. Rewinding just for a second here, back to when you first took up the post-conviction appeal, obviously at that point, you're recording an appeal, the direct appeals are over, and so this post-conviction one is pretty daunting for an attorney, I would imagine, that the standard you have to carry will be higher. What um, what are the most significant challenges in taking up such an appeal? You know, I, I think, and this is a case that illustrates those challenges really well, is that um, there are a lot of post-convictions filed in Baltimore City Circuit Court, and um, a lot of them are filed pro se. And I think that the the judges a lot of times don't take them seriously and don't give them the scrutiny that, that they may or may not deserve. And so, you know, that's the biggest challenge is you, you, might, have, you might have a great issue, but um, the courts just want to you know, wrap these cases up. I mean, they they don't have time to hold these, you know, massive evidentiary hearings like like we have gotten in this case for just the the run of the mill post conviction. So, 
um, you know, one of the biggest challenges is after, after you've identified a good issue is presenting it in a way that, you know, where, where you're making it very clear to the judge and the judge is getting the point that, hey, this is, this is a bona fide issue here. I mean, this is a constitutional violation. You need to take this seriously because judges are not, they're not predisposed to grant post convictions. Um, and I'm sure it's the same in every state. You know, they, they want to deny these things. The whole system is rigged to uphold convictions for, for finality. So you've really got to, um, you know, you've got to shake some significant things loose in order to gain any kind of relief. Sure. People always say how overworked the courts are, and that certainly militates against putting a microscope against you know, every potential questionable conviction. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've been on both sides of it. You know, I, I, I was a law clerk before, so, um, you know, I, I know how those those petitions can pile up in chambers. And, um, you know, it's it's challenging for the judges. Sure. So as you touch on this appeal process, it's not a quick one. It's been going on for some several years, and I'm sure it met occasionally with some setbacks, including, I believe, the original post-conviction filing being denied in, in early 2014. Um, right. First of all, uh, were, there, were there many times that you thought you might not wake up to a day where Anand Syed was, was going to see a new trial? Yes. We, we thought it was, it was over. Um, the The post-conviction court had just denied our our post-conviction petition and um we had we had filed an application for leave to appeal so in maryland you after the denial of a post-conviction you have to ask the court for permission to get an appeal and um statistically about one or two of those is granted every year so there's like a it's a less than a two percent chance of even getting the court to give you an appeal to your post-conviction. So at that point, um, we felt utterly defeated. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's depressing. You, you've fought so hard for this case, and um, your client has a life sentence, and you're really like the last line of hope. And um, I, I felt like, uh, like we had failed. So that, and it was at that um, against that backdrop that we agreed to um, to do this radio, what we thought was a radio program with Sarah Koenig for National Public Radio. Um, and that, you know, it just started snowballing and snowballing and it took on a life of its own and eventually it became serial. But had we not been in such desperate straits, I don't think we would have given a reporter the kind of access that we gave to Sarah Koenig. That's very interesting. Then with all that in mind, could you try to describe to me what was going through your head when you got this order from a couple weeks ago granting a new trial? It, it, was, pretty, it was pretty exciting. You know, we, we got a, um, first of all, we'd been, we had been waiting for over four months and um, it was an excruciating wait because, so, you know, I, I poured so much into this case, um, you know, we we got a phone call on Thursday afternoon, and my associate ran over to court, which is which is about a, two blocks from my office. And um, you know, I, I she called me. I just said, you know, rip it open, and um, you know, she said we won. So it was um, it, it was a, a big relief because there was just so much pressure associated with this case, and so many people were looking at it so closely. Um, 
you know, and, and we celebrated and relaxed for <laughs> about two days. And then, <laughs> and then we were like, hey, now we got to defend it in the appellate sure. courts. Yeah, I guess that would lead me to my next question. Um, do you think the, the likeliest next step is an appeal of this order or just a, a, will the state move to, to try him again? Right. So we, we don't know yet. Um, in, under Maryland law, the state has 30 days to, um, to file something that would start the appeals process moving. Um, they have not told us one way or another whether they're going to appeal, although they've, they've issued a statement that seems to indicate that they likely will appeal. So, you know, we, we are working under the assumption that they will appeal and, um, you know, so there, there could be a pretty, um, pretty protracted fight in the appeals court now where the roles are kind of, div- you know, the roles are reversed and we are trying to defend the judge's opinion now. Okay, well, say we do get to a point where a new trial begins. Could you t- tell me about some of the unique challenges of defending a case where the, the events took place now 17 years ago, I think? Yeah, um, I think that a, a lot of the challenges are, you know, I think that it would be to our advantage to try it now, um, that the time is going to work more against the state than it's going to work against sure. us. Um you know they've got they've got witnesses who um, you know in particular their their primary witness Jay Wilds has given interviews to um, various publications. The story has shifted with time. Um, you know wit- witnesses have moved on and they're living out of state and they might not be so eager to come back to Baltimore. Sure. So um, I, I think that the state is is going to really have um, a big challenge putting on another case. Um, you know, that, that said, I don't want to underestimate them, and there's some brilliant prosecutors, and I'm sure uh, if, if it comes to that, that they're going to fight very hard, and um, we'll just have to be ready for them. Okay, well, I know that I and, and many, many others will be watching with interest that almost nearly matches your own. Um, I'll let you get get back to work then. And uh, from one native Marylander to another, I hope you uh, enjoyed some some jumbo lump crab meat, the finest that Baltimore can provide <laughs> in celebration of the order. That brings a smile to my face. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good way to celebrate. All right. Sure. Well, my my pleasure being on the show, and nice talking to you. Once more, that was Justin Brown of Brown and Nieto in Baltimore discussing the particular rigors of a long-shot post-conviction criminal appeal. We'll move now to kick off our summer series previewing the October 2016 United States Supreme Court term, and we'll hear from Ben Foyer discussing Samsung v. Apple. We welcome in now Ben Foyer, the chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, which is a a 10-lawyer appellate boutique firm in San Francisco. He has devoted his entire career to appellate law. He's serves as the lead appellate counsel in, in many federal and state appeals with his firm. He clerked on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for Judge Carlos Bea, and in 2013 won the Barrister of the Year Award from the San Francisco Bar Association for his work in the appellate section, where he's the founder and longtime chair. And uh, least of all, he contributes regularly to the Daily Journal's column section, both uh, individually himself and his team contributes columns under the appellation Appellate Zealots. Mr. Foyer, thanks for being on the program. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here. 
So one case granted cert by the Supreme Court for this term pits Apple and Samsung. Obviously, these these two companies have been in legal wrangles for the last several years, it seems, in federal court and multiple different cases, many of them essentially dealing with the notion that Samsung ripped Apple off for, for certain designs when they would create products like phones that look substantially similar to ones created by Apple. This case specifically was a design patent infringement case brought by Apple against Samsung that I think pertained to a few design patents related to the iPhone, like its rounded edges, its icon grid, its rectangular black shape. Uh, and in, in federal court, Samsung defended itself saying, these designs shouldn't maybe really be patentable, a black rectangle. But they lost on that question, and it was part of their appeal, I think, in the Supreme Court. But the question whether or not the patents are necessarily viable was rejected by, by the Supreme Court. Uh, and so Lee, that just leaves, I believe, a, a second question pertaining to what the appropriate damages are in the case that a court rules that a design patent has been infringed. Is that, is that the long and short of it? That's exactly right, Brian. So these are the great cell phone wars, the great battle, the, the epic struggle between Apple and Samsung over the iPhone that has been going on in, related to patents for many, many years, for many, many millions of dollars. And this has now reached the U.S. Supreme Court, which is only, as you point out, only looking at one question. Samsung really wanted the Supreme Court to look at two questions. The question that the Supreme Court's looking at, which has to do with how damages are calculated, because Samsung is on the hook with this judgment for almost $400 million in damages, it's a lot of money at stake. So Samsung certainly is happy that the Supreme Court granted cert on the damages question. But Samsung wanted the Supreme Court to even look at the basic question as to whether or not design patents had long since gone past what the 1887 Congress that enacted the modern patent regime envisioned. Design patents are patents over the look of something. They're relatively easy to get. You just have to submit drawings, and no one else can have the exact same drawing. And if someone else comes up with a product that is the exact same thing that you have drawn, then you may have a case for patent infringement. They're not considered the strongest form of protection because the copied item or the allegedly copied item has to be exactly the same, but they offer some serious damages. Samsung wanted the Supreme Court to look at the underlying conclusion of the jury, or even the law that permitted the underlying conclusion of the jury, that three designs from the iPhone were copied by Samsung in its Galaxy series of Android phones. And those are the rounded cornered black rectangle shape for a phone, the rounded corner with an edge, a little bit of an edge around it, and then the, the rest of the phone. If you look at your iPhone, there's a little bit of an edge, uh, or at least there, there was in that generation of phones, uh, that would separate the glass piece from the case around it. And that was also part of Apple's lawsuit. And then Apple prevailed also on the third patent, which were a grid of 16 cell phone icons on the screen of your cell phone laid out four by four in bright color. So Apple prevailed on its three patent for the rounded edge rectangle, the beveled edge separating the black glass from the rest of the phone, 
and a grid of four by four brightly colored icons on the screen. For those of us who use cell phones, of course, these are kind of the basic expected aspect, or at least of smartphones. But anyone who's using most of the modern phone system expects their screen to have a lot, maybe 16 icons, the shape of the phone to be about a square, and maybe or maybe not, there, there will be some beveled edges to it. And those are the, the three patents Apple went on. So Samsung wanted the Supreme Court to take a look at this and say, hey, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. These are some very basic features, and these were far beyond what the authors of the original or, or the, the current patent laws in the late 19th century were thinking about when they were thinking about design patents, that they could include these very common features that end up being a part of people's everyday lives. But the jury found for Apple, Samsung sought cert. The Supreme Court denied cert on that issue. So on that issue, the judgment is final. The other issue that the Supreme Court did grant cert on is still very important. Whether Apple can recover the quote-unquote total profit that Samsung earned from sales of its phone, which included those three features. This is essentially a question of statutory interpretation. The statute uses the term total profit. It says that the person who uses a patented design without the owner's license is liable for the total profit. But it says that the patented design has to be a patented design to an article of manufacture. And Samsung argues in its cert petition that an article of manufacture is separate from the entire product. And the concept of total profits means total profits derivable from that particular patented design rather than the total profits from the product sales in all respects. And that's particularly in a situation like this, where the patents cover relatively nuanced aspects of the device, yet Apple is going to be able to capture $400 million, the entirety of Samsung's profits on these devices, because the jury found that Samsung incorporated these features which belong to Apple. Yeah, that obviously seems like a tremendously big question. You know, rounded corners and black rectangle beveled edges, that's not the entirety of a phone. It obviously includes lots of software and, and plenty of other bells and whistles. And so to, to be disgorged of the entire profit based on the fact that it had just a few of the, the same aspects it does seem like a very punitive award. I yeah, so I mean, it's a, it's a very significant amount of money. And chances are that's what grabbed the court's attention. This is the first design patent case in a very long time. Most of the cases on design patents reach the federal circuit. The federal circuit issues its ruling, and the Supreme Court doesn't really go into it. So, so this is one of the first one the court's taken in 120 years related to design patents. And chances are what really grabbed the court's attention is this concept that total profits were forfeit due to the incorporation of a smaller component of a very complicated piece of machinery, which may have many other substantial differences. Now, Apple asserts that its design was really its biggest selling point. 
And that's what Samsung, at least the jury found, copied. And that's what Apple should be entitled to, the, the entire profits, because that's what the Patent Act says. The Patent Act uses the word total profits, and you know that's a pretty <laughs> clear concept, total profits. Um, the reality is that the court may be looking at this and saying, hey, wait a minute, there is no way that the Congress in 1887 would, was considering $400 million in terms of damages because of the inclusion of a component that may or may not be integral to the product or its ultimate sales. It may be part of it, but not the entirety. Now, Apple argues that this was an option for the jury, that is, the way the law is structured and the jury instruction is given doesn't require that total profits be awarded, but instead uses the word may and essentially says the jury may award total profits. But if that were likely to be the decisive factor for the court, it seems to me unlikely that the court would have taken this case just to say that. It's a pretty straightforward denial of cert on that ground, um, and that's certainly something the, the court could have left alone. The court is thinking about these issues as it evaluates the case, and, and these are probably the reasons that it got their attention. Design patents and patent law in general has increased over the last 30 years in importance to the United States economy. The economy has moved from an economy based on things that are built in many ways to one based on intellectual property, ideas, designs. Uh, and, and as a result, the Supreme Court has been taking on more, more and more patent law cases. But this is still the first design patent case in a very, very long time. And the court's ruling here is going to be very important going forward in determining how damages in these more and more important cases are allocated. There's certainly a, a big effect from these large damages in terms of how important it is to prosecute patents and defend patents and how, how much care an innovator has to go through before releasing a product that may potentially infringe on design patent in some way. And like you say, in devices like this, there's so many different patentable pieces that come together to make the device. So yeah, if, if just one of them happens to violate a design patent, and then as a result, you're you're going to end up losing all the profits that you, you may have gained from, from that product. It, it would, would seem like it'd be pretty daunting to anyone trying to enter a certain market where there might be a, a dominant company such as an Apple. Sure. And, and one of the points that Samsung makes is what if a complicated product like this is alleged to violate patents from two different companies or two different patent owners? They don't have to be companies, but two different patent owners, each of which under the statute is entitled to total profit. How can that make sense? And ultimately, that's really, I think, what's the driving force behind Samsung's petition here. How does this make sense that you would have a small piece that would lead to a disgorgement of total profits. Now, now, Apple, of course, points to federal circuit law that's been in existence for now 30 years, I suppose, or, or 20 years, uh, that interprets the patent laws to include total profits for the product, in part because of congressional speeches at the time, the congressional record, which 
points out, in which there at least there's discussion, of the difficulty in apportioning and understanding how a single component affects the ultimate sales of a product. And there was a situation at the time where uh, there, there, there's sort of a case of notoriety that uh, in, in which a fundamental feature uh, had been stolen and the, the ultimate damages were something like six cents. Uh, even though there was a finding of infringement because th- that's all, it was a small little tassel, I think, on, on, on the product. Uh, but, but they were very famous and, and desirable. So it, it, the, the court at the time, one of the court's decisions uh, caused sort of a, an uproar, and that led Congress to pass a revised patent act that had this language involving a total, total profit. But Samsung points out that Congress did it against the backdrop of general equitable principles that apply in any tort action, including the basic idea of causation and the basic idea of equity in terms of awarding damages that are appropriate to a given offense. So there really are powerfully justice-oriented arguments in a way on both sides. That is, Samsung is saying that there's this justice in finding a fairness and Apple is saying that justice lies in Congress's pretty clear language and congressional testimony and uh, writing that suggests that Congress really did intend for this kind of, of rule, even though it has, uh, in this case, led to a pretty incredible result. Sure. Things like equitable considerations and, and policy concerns. Aside, I mean, the first thing the court's look to often is the, the plain language of the statute. And as you mentioned it here, this, the Patent Act that the, the Federal Circuit referred to from 1887 has pretty clear statutory language that total damages are available. And as a result, the, the Federal Circuit's analysis, I think, on the damages point was maybe a page long. They said, look, we looked at the plain language, it says total damages are fine. So there's no problem. But obviously, if the court's taking up the case and specifically focusing on that question, they intend to, to give it more than a page of analysis, I imagine. I suspect so. Um, you know, it reminds me of a story a friend of mine who is a, a federal circuit judge told me once, and, and it was after this person had a, an unpublished opinion of his taken up by the Supreme Court on a cert petition. And I think I said, boy, didn't see, didn't see that one coming. And he said, you know, when they take up a case like that, it's because they've kind of been looking out for something like that. It has at least been on somebody's mind. And even though it's been a long-standing precedent, because this, again, this law had been in place since I think the 1990s, or at least this, in, this federal circuit precedent that made this total profits type interpretation. And, um, they've kind of just been looking for the right case to deal with it. And I suspect that that in a way is what's going on here. It may be that some of the justices are kind of familiar a little bit with this issue, um, or perhaps clerks or, or, or something along those lines, and have sort of had an eye out for this kind of weird result coming from it. And it may be that other justices who are just generally focused on the idea of innovation uh, and free enterprise find the notion of a of disgorgement of complete profits for work that 
wasn't really done, or at least a lot of work and, and expense that wasn't, I mean, certainly Apple, there are plenty of components to Samsung's phone that Apple doesn't even allege that Samsung stole from Apple. And to capture entirety of profits as a result of that type of, uh, the types of patents that Apple uh, has sought to be compensated uh, on for infringement, it's going to strike some folks as pretty anomalous. So I, I suspect that it's a combination of those two factors leading to the core choosing this case as the one to to deal with. Also, also it's it's a lot of money. Let's not you know sure. you know things aren't cheap, of course. But four hundred million dollars is four hundred million dollars, and the justices and their clerks also they're, they're now at the point where they probably many of them use cell phones or, or smartphones regularly. They, they certainly use BlackBerry, use Blackberries. Their clerks all have iPhones or Androids, and they understand what this stuff is intuitively a little bit more than they perhaps once did. I wanted to cite a bit from Samsung's opening brief, where I'm sure a very handsomely remunerated attorney makes a, a very evocative argument by analogy to describe the Federal Circuit's ruling as creating a scenario where an automaker who infringes a, a cup holder design would need to see damages totaling profits from the entire car. In your mind, is that, is that a fair surmise of the Federal Circuit's holding? Well, certainly not how the Federal Circuit put it. <laughs> um, and Apple's response sort of says, look, this is setting up a straw man. It's never happened. No one has kind of brought that type of claim but Samsung's response is, hey, wait a minute, this is that type of claim, right? This is the exact same scenario that you don't have to even say that this is what will happen. You can say that this is what's happening. It's just sort of the modern version of it. We're just putting it in language that, uh, you know, the, the justices may be more comfortable analogizing to. So it, just because it's, that hasn't happened before doesn't mean it won't happen, hasn't happening now and won't happen in the future. And to the extent that that claim might one day be brought, now that Samsung has brought it to the world's attention and it's, you know, very high-paid lawyers, maybe someone will try to bring that kind of lawsuit and see what happens. A jury may be more, you know, the place to challenge it, and this is, in a way, Apple's response, the place to challenge it would be in the jury room, that, or before the jury, I guess, and I hope the jury challenges in the jury room, that is to explain to the jury that, even if total profits can be awarded under the statute, that would be just completely ridiculous. One of the arguments that Apple makes, is, as we've said, is that the, the statutory language is pretty clear in, in the, the reference statute from 1887, but that argument obviously intentionally, but, but it certainly overlooks the fact that the gentlemen writing that congressional statute over 100 years ago were very unlikely to have been able to foresee what an iPhone looked like and, and just digital gadgets that comprise so many different parts. So, I mean, how, how strong of an argument is the fact that this statute from 140 years ago has clear statutory language? Well, the answer is it depends which justice you're talking to or about. <laughs> um, the justices have very, very divergent views on that exact question. Generally speaking, the text of the statute controls. But some justices take the view that they should look to 
the plain text and what it simply says and what that means today. Some justices take the view that you should look at the plain text in the context of what it meant at the time that it was written. Some justices take the view that you should look at the text in the context of what Congress's intentions overall were when it passed the statute and what otherwise was going on in Congress and in the country at the time. And the justices feel very strongly about their different views. Justice Scalia, who of course has passed away, was a proponent of an, an approach to congressional text that looked at, that looked at the text of the statute uh, and, and would look at maybe the meanings of the words at the time the statute was passed. Other justices, Justice Breyer, for example, likes to look at what the what words may mean today or what overall was going on in Congress at the time and how that relates to the experience today. So you have very different concepts of how a particular statutory text should be interpreted by different justices. Here, I think that the fact that the court granted cert uh, in a case that is otherwise, at least on damages, unremarkable save for the amount of damages. I, I think that that indicates that, I mean, at least four justices think there's something wrong with the opinion. Now, you're going to need a fifth one to create precedent. But, you know, there, there are going to be a number of justices who are troubled by just the, the general effect, policy effects of having a regime in which all profits are disgorgeable, uh, even based on an intuitively minor aspect, or, or certainly not 100% of the aspect of the reason people buy a certain product. There's obviously a lot of disagreements between these two parties, but one of the most fundamental ones, it seems to me, is that Samsung is arguing that people buy cell phones for their functionality, that they'll, they'll do certain tasks for them. They'll be able to check their email, they'll make phone calls, I'll check Instagram. But Apple seems to make the point that a fair amount of people will buy the phone very largely because of what it looks like. And so they were the first ones to issue phones like this that had this look. And so that if that is the main reason, you know, what the iPhone looks like is a, a very important reason as to why people would buy them. And then Samsung comes along and makes a phone that looks just like it. I'm uh, sure the phone does a lot of different stuff, but if the if maybe the fundamental reason that folks flocked to the iPhone when it came out 10 years ago was because of that look, then maybe it isn't so inequitable for total profits to be disgorged. And speaking merely as a tech consumer, I don't think it's a laughable argument to say that plenty of people over the past decade have bought Apple products because they look good. You know, the tension you identify is probably the same tension that led the United States to file the amicus brief that it did. The United States filed an amicus brief in this case on behalf of neither the petitioner nor the respondent in which the government took the position that total profits and the amount of profits that are awarded should be apportioned on the basis of the role the patents played in the product's overall sales. But that the question of who should make that determination is the fact finder. That is, 
Samsung should be in a position to present this ev- this argument to the jury that hey wait a minute lots of here's a bunch of studies or a bunch of witnesses even of people who bought the Samsung phone because of its functionality its apps whatever it is that Samsung's phone offers that Apple's phone doesn't and that therefore an award of total profits is inappropriate and then that verdict, whatever it is, could be challenged by the normal ways, uh, or at least the, the damages award, could be challenged by the normal ways damages awards may be challenged as unreasonably excessive, and so on and so forth. So that's the position the U.S. takes, and, and in a way that's what basically and most effectively accounts for the tension that you identify, I think, that, hey, well, I don't know, why do people buy cell phones? Apple's position, of course, is that Congress resolved that question. Congress made the decision to say, you know, we're going to draw a bright line rule that you can't make that determination, that that is just impossible to do, and that therefore total profits are going to be awarded in every case. Certainly the mathematics involved are a lot simpler if you just stick to to total damages. I mean, what are the practical considerations in terms of, like you say, figuring out how you would apportion damages. It seems like a very difficult question. I know both of these parties have very talented lawyers, but to figure out just how much it means to a person that the corners of a phone are round, you know, um, or that it has a particular app that's functional, it seems like it'd be very, very challenging. You know, the reality is this is what juries do all the time. How does a jury decide guilt or innocence in a he said, she said case? How does a jury weigh what percentage of someone's cancer was caused by their exposure to harmful chemical versus their exposure to their own smoking. Or if two cars collide on the highway, how does the jury decide which party is responsible or more responsible? The business of juries is to make these evidentiary determinations usually based on different expert reports. That is, the different sides will have different experts, and the juries will weigh those reports and decide which experts they trust and which experts they don't, and then what they feel in their gut should the right answer be, and and somehow through that process we get to something that we hope is resembling justice. But that's also it's it's the exact same problem in a patent case involving deciding what percentage of your desire to buy a cell, certain cell phone was was caused by its appearance versus its functionality or who your carrier was or what the deal was on that phone at that time, whatever it might be, its price, uh, as compared to, you know, deciding what someone's loss of life as a result of a some medical malpractice, for example, is worth. In fact, how interesting and unfortunate perhaps it is that we, we, we so wonder, and, and not just you, I think many of us probably say to ourselves, well, how can I figure out why I bought that particular cell phone? And perhaps wonder less that the judicial process be in a position to determine how much a human life is worth. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't mean to underestimate the American jury system. I appreciate you setting, setting me oh, straight you can, there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, don't 
me wrong, I think that the American jury system may have plenty of, of grievances that people may, may very reasonably make at the American jury system, but um, I, that's the answer to your question, is that that's what juries do. Juries are in the business of deciding things that you know there's no clear answer to and figuring out what evidence they want to weigh and what as a group they sort of come to consensus on and 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 that's how they make their decisions that's why it's very important that everyone who's do jury duty right because you you always (laughs) want to have a really broad but also high quality and interested and committed jury pool if possible the fight here obviously pits apple and since on these two major companies but i imagine the results in terms of design patent damages will be tremendously significant for generations to come. Can you talk about the impacts that, that this case could have? Yeah, this, I mean, the, the, the it, I mean, I don't know about generations to come. You never know. The court could re- revisit whatever it decides this time. It, it, it could, uh, um, there are a lot of ways things could go. It could, it could split four, four, which would just affirm the lower court's ruling, uh, without creating any precedent. So, Assuming the court creates precedent and assuming the court doesn't revisit design patents in a similar amount of time as when it did last time, um, although, again, as patents become more and more critical to the American economy, it's, I think it's likely that the court will continue to see them on its docket. But, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the, this, is, this could be the difference between tremendous amounts of innovation, tremendous amounts of copying, tremendous amounts of damages. Um, there are all kinds of effects depending on what the court does. If the court leaves the current system in place, well, then you'll probably see the continued use of the design patents and the, the patent system as a ongoing weapon as part of general competition in the tech industry. It certainly has been in the past used that way. If the court dramatically cuts these damages and, and essentially sets up a regime, perhaps as the government suggests, which would mean that the types of design patents that Apple identified might be entitled ultimately to 7% of, of the profit or 30% or whatever it may be that the jury concludes that of that, those profits that are attributed to Samsung's use of that specific design, then it may be much less of an incentive for companies to use the patent system and the patent legal process as part of competition. At the same time, it may be easier for companies to innovate and to pirate, essentially, or to 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 copy in, in, in many ways because there will be less disincentives, potential disincentives to both. You, you mentioned that it's been several decades since a design patent case has been before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, kind of with that in mind and the fact that the first question presented here about just the viability of these design patents themselves being, I think, rel- relatively interesting, were you surprised that that, that question was not Granted, sir, is does the matter settled there, or, or is there still some degree of uncertainty as to, to where exactly a line might be drawn between you know, what can qualify as a design patent and what cannot? You know, it's very difficult to ever really make a guess 
as to why the Supreme Court denies cert on one case or another. The court has such an idiosyncratic way of determining what cases it's going to hear in such a discretionary way of doing so that you just really never know. Some years the court really seems to make a conscious choice to focus on certain issues. And they'll, they'll hear three or four, five cases on a certain issue that term and, and really focus on, on that issue or clarifying that area of law. Other times the court may decide that a certain case isn't the right vehicle or a certain issue isn't presented in the right way. Other times the court may decide that it's just not um, wrong or not enough, even if three justices think it's wrong, if, unless it's a, an, an issue they feel very strongly about, they're unlikely to, to dissent from denial. But even if three justices would want to grant cert, uh, you, you may never know that, depending on the type of case. Um, the Supreme Court ultimately, as with most Supreme Courts, is a policy-based court rather than an error-correcting court. So if the court believes that there's something wrong with the law as it's being and will be applied, that's much more likely to be a situation in which the court grants relief or, or, get, or even grants cert, forget about relief, but even, even is willing to take a look at a case, than a case where you say, hey, this is just, this is wrong. This is, they, they didn't do this. That said, of course, the, Sam, that's not the issue Samson's raising. Samson's raising a much broader question about what types of things can be patented. But you know, maybe, maybe the court feels like that question is better suited for Congress. Maybe the court, four members of the court, didn't want to deal with it in, in a year when they're down a member, uh, or they wanted to wait to see what other kind of cases raise the issue. Um, there, there are a lot of reasons the court might deny search. It's very, very difficult to try to make a guess. Okay, then obviously, as you mentioned, the specter of a potential 4-4 tie looms, but if you had to, to guess, what do you think the court will, will say about this issue? You know, I think, well, it's, it's always hard to, to predict patent cases, partly because they don't break down on ideological lines. There aren't tons of them out there that, uh, I think you can point to, obviously, not design patent cases. I think that a number of members of the court will be troubled by the idea that you can force a patent user or patent infringer, I guess, to disgorge all profits from a product where the patented aspect of the product represents what may seem to be a relatively minor part. Does that mean that the court will not conclude that Congress intended that result, even if it is kind of anomalous, that's hard to say. Um, the cert petitions really don't fully make it clear. It looks like the Congress uh, may have intended or at least considered that as being part of its reasoning for writing the law the way it did. But there are a number of cases at the time, federal circuit cases at the time, and uh, that seem to interpret the law the way Samsung would like uh, and, and consider that patents that only apply to part of a product are not entitled to disgorgement of the product's entirety of its profits. 
So it's going to be a really interesting one to watch with a lot of, a lot of money and, and potential effects at stake down the road. Okay, we'll leave it there for now and we'll await the oral arguments in this case coming up in the next few months in October term 2016. Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Brian. And with that, our show for July 22nd, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take one more opportunity to thank both of our guests, Justin Brown of Brown and Nieto, and Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group. Sincere thanks goes also to all the members of the protection staff here, including Helen Enriquez, Oscar Vialta, Dominic Fricasa, Nick Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.